Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. Great to be with you here once again and coming from the heels of Purim. We had great celebrations on Purim, and now we get into Pesach. I call this like the PPP era, the post-Purim, pre-Pesach preparation, planning, and everything else that's involved. And for all those who know that we run the Pesach retreat, which is itself a fabulous experience for all those who want to get away from Pesach, glorious ambiance and Beautiful cultural dialogue, call it inspiration, lots of entertainment. Everything comes together at that Pesach retreat. And certainly this year, everyone wants to break. So Pesach is coming, but we are not out of the month of Adar yet, the month of joy. So Adar being the season of joy and Pesach being the time of spiritual redemption. Both these months, Adar and Nisan, are actually referred to as months of redemption. In Adar, we celebrate the redemption from the murderous intent of Haman to impose the final solution upon the Jewish people as we just celebrated on Purim. But now, as we're getting ready for Pesach, in the month of Nisan, we commemorate our redemption, our exodus, our liberation from Egyptian bondage, our emancipation from slavery and all that it represented. Both of those historic events aren't just they're not merely unique in Jewish history as times of miracles and salvation, but they serve as representative breakthroughs that brought us to new levels of understanding and experiencing the concept of freedom. What does it mean to be free? Now, depending on our own particular circumstances and conditions, freedom takes on different relative, different meanings. Maybe to kids in school, freedom is to have a summer vacation, to go on a holiday, to have a break from learning. For an employee, to be free is perhaps to become an employer. You know, to be the employer, to be free is to be relieved of the obligations that that role entails. So free has different meanings to people. Coming from somebody who was sick, you know, to be free means to be healthy. I went to visit some people in jail recently. Think about what impression that leaves, you know, to the imprisoned person, freedom to finally be released from prison. It certainly puts us into a whole different perspective when we walk through the corridors of a correctional facility. And we would hope that indeed that it serves as a correctional facility rather than as we see the 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 repetition, the continuation. So when we put this concept of freedom, when we're tired and hungry and worried, freedom is to be rested, to be satiated, happy. But many people believe that to be free is to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Is that true freedom? Now, of course... It doesn't seem beyond comprehension that in our society where so many of us can basically do indeed whatever we want, whatever we wish and, you know, whatever we want to be, whatever we want to do, are we really free? And indeed, the more we have, the more we seem to need. And the more we need, 
the less we're satisfied with what we actually have. They say a lot of people these days are spending much money that they don't have on things they don't need. How does the rest of that expression go? To impress people they don't even know. The truth is that something or someone always drives us. We always submit to some form of authority. Oftentimes it is society around us or even our own physical animalism that dominates our existence and directs our lives. There's different names, different terminologies. The animal in us, the negative urge, the other force, the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. And this manifestation of our identity has enormous influence in our behavior. When we talk about the Hamans of all times, don't forget there's also a Haman sometimes lurking just inside of ourselves. It's the sum of all our desires for physical pleasures, indulging our negative characteristics, whatever that might be, greed, envy, ego. And the nature of this human animal is never to be satisfied. The more you feed that physical part of our existence, the hungrier it gets. When the body, when our animal soul, when the sensual persona of ourselves is the dominating part of of our life, of our existence, then the notion of freedom is to expand itself. More, 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 more food, more money, more pleasure, more power, more whatever. But under those conditions, it's the soul, the inner, more essential, godly facet of a person that's squashed, that's limited, that's contained and compacted. And we cannot escape a master. We could accept another person or even our own physicality as our master and pay the consequences of never being truly free. Or we accept that Almighty God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is our master. His rule does indeed limit our bodily functions. And there are rules to be a Jew. Look at the very Torah portion this week. Again, a reminder about the laws of Shabbos and so much more. But that part of us is temporary and limited. Our souls, our inner being, it's to soar free, to make us feel expansive, fulfilled, joyous, emancipated. And the tension between the body, our our animal, and the soul, the spiritual side, it's a constant and difficult struggle. Freedom and ultimately joy, which is what the month of Atta is all about, depends on who is the victor. How can we expect to be victorious in all of our formidable challenges? How? Well, with a connection and relationship to God. Then we can overcome the physical oppression and we can attain true freedom. Purim, which we are coming from, teaches us not to despair, don't ever give up hope. Even when Haman of then and the Hamans of the world seem to be closest to their success and their diabolical pursuits. God transforms reality and the oppressed become masters while the despots suffer. We have to remember that the message of Purim, the most joyous holiday of the year, is one that's not limited to Purim. 
In fact, we have yesterday was Shusham Purim. Shusham Purim reminds us that we have to take the spirit of Purim and extend it through the rest of the year. And that's why in walled cities like Jerusalem, and I would petition to say even Johannesburg, we're quite a walled city, we should be able to extend the celebration. And we should. We certainly should. There's no other holiday I could think of. You don't blow the shofar after Rosh Hashanah. We don't fast after Yom Kippur. We don't sleep or eat in huts and sukkahs after sukkahs. We don't kindle our menorah after Hanukkah. We don't eat matzah beyond Pesach. Yet, Purim, we get an extra day. And the truth is, if we consider all of the celebrations of Purim itself, these are things we do year-round. Except in Purim, we emphasize them, and we do them even more. So it's about extending the joy, the celebration of Purim, into the rest of the year. Since Purim is about that victory, that triumph over evil. And remember, in life, how do you get from try to try umph? All it takes is a little bit of umph. And here comes Pesach. Pesach charges us to trade in our human physical temporary masters as we were all slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and place our trust, our faith in the singular good and eternal almighty God. The Torah tells us that God took us all out of Egypt beyond Chazaka with a strong, mighty hand. So to follow in his path, to cleanse ourselves, and now we begin the process of getting ready for that redemption. So for the next three and a half weeks, as we get ready for our seders, we work on a cleansing process to cleanse ourselves from the flesh butts of Egypt, to stand ready at Sinai, which the whole purpose of the redemption from Egyptian bondage was not just freedom from, but it was freedom to, so that we are ready to stand at Mount Sinai to get ready for the festival of Shavuos when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. That's the whole point. To stand ready to be able to live in a more meaningful and purposeful way. So as we transition from this period of Purim to Pesach and we contemplate our own personal trials and challenges, let us join the children of Israel. Let us do what our ancestors did in attaining true freedom. There's no free person, as the Mishnah says, except one who studies Torah, one who's occupied in a life of godly direction. Please, God, will all merit to revel in this experience. And let's talk a little bit about preparing for Pesach in today's show. We'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. As we get ready for the great festive holiday of Pesach. And it is sooner than you can imagine. Pesach is coming very soon. And there's lots we need to do to get ready for this most exciting and beautiful holiday. In fact, lots of preparation, so much anticipation but Pesach is nearly here, and it's time now for celebration. Time to get ready for this momentous occasion for Pesach, and there's a lot to do in preparation for this holiday. So what I thought we would do is take some time today to celebrate or to discuss 
some of the best ways that we could get ready for Pesach. First, maybe we should talk about what is Pesach. Pesach is an eight-day festival, also known as Passover, the day when God passed over the Jewish homes back in Egypt. So, from the 15th through the 22nd of the Hebrew month of Nisan, which this year works out from the 5th through the 13th, the month of April. And of course, it commemorates the emancipation of our ancestors from slavery, from bondage in ancient Egypt. By following the rituals of Pesach, we have the ability to relive, to experience that freedom that our ancestors gained. But Jewish holidays are not only about recalling, remembering, it's about reliving, re-experiencing, rejuvenating. And the same energy that existed back then is actually present today as well. So someone asked for the story in a nutshell, after many decades, decades of slavery to the Egyptian pharaohs, during which the Israelites were subjected to back-breaking labor and unbearable horrors, God saw the people's distress and sent Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, to Pharaoh with a message. Let my people go. That Pharaoh should send forth the Jewish people. Shalach ami v'yavduni. Send forth my people, Moshe said to Pharaoh, conveying God's message so that they may serve me. But despite numerous warnings, Pharaoh refused to heed God's command. And God then sent upon Egypt, as we all know the story, ten devastating plagues, afflicting them and destroying everything from their livestock to their crops. Ten plagues! And at the stroke of midnight of the 15th of Nisan, just to put that into consideration, today is the 16th of Adar, which means... We're just under four weeks away. In the year 2448 from creation, which is 1313 BCE, God visited the last of the ten plagues on the Egyptians. And that was Makas Becharas, killing all their firstborn. And while doing so, God speared the children of Israel, hence the name Passover. God passed over their homes, the Jewish homes. And that's the famous, that's the origin, the etymology of the English name for Pesach being Passover. Of course, in Hebrew, Pesach meaning the doorway. And there's more meanings which we'll talk about. Pharaoh's resistance was broken. And he virtually chased his former slaves out of the land. The Jewish people, the Israelites, left in such a hurry, in fact, that the bread they baked Imagine they needed provisions, needed food for their journey. They don't even know where they're going. There was no time for the bread to rise. 600,000 adult males, plus many more women and children, numbering, according to estimates, 3 million Jews, left Egypt on that day and began the trek to Mount Sinai. So that was the destination. Of course... We know that seven days later, Pharaoh had charata. He had remorse, regretted allowing the Jews to leave and pursue them again. Which is why on the seventh day of Pesach, Shvi'i shall Pesach, which in Israel is actually the final day of the holiday, we 
observe another holiday, which reminds us of the miracle of God splitting the sea for our ancestors. So that's why Pesach is actually divided into two parts. The first day in Israel, or two days here in Diaspora, is the commemorating the emancipation from slavery, our redemption, and the latter part commemorating the splitting of the Red Sea. And they're two full-fledged holidays. In a sense, the second part of the holiday is the extension of the continuation of the first part, because the redemption cannot have been complete while the Egyptians are still pursuing them. So, there's a lot to do to prepare for Pesach. And perhaps we could talk soon about our shopping lists and everything else we have to do to get ready. Because there's lots that has to happen. We have to prepare. We have to clean. We have to shop. There's so much to do. And of course, on the holiday itself, we don't go to work. We don't use technology. We don't, we don't write. We don't, uh, you know, there are certain things. Yet you are permitted to cook and to carry outdoors, unlike on Shabbos if there's no Erev. What's interesting about this year's sequence, actually, is that it will be two days of Yom Tev going straight into Shabbos. Which also makes it interesting for the conclusion of the holiday because Pesach ends on a Thursday night. So sometimes people need a holiday after the holiday. In that case, they could join us at the Pesach retreat if they'd like where they could get a holiday after the holiday. You know, the great, great opportunity for a vacation. Take a, you know, think, let your mind travel back to that moment to the best holiday you maybe experienced, those breathtaking sights and the delectable food, the magical atmosphere, that oasis in time that recharged you with renewed vigor and restored zest for life. And... If you think about the most empowering spiritual moment that you may have experienced, whether it was a soul-stirring Yom Kippur melody in Shul, or perhaps a great show here on Soul to Soul, or maybe a insightful shiur that you attended. Actually, when you attend Pesach retreat, you're getting the synthesis, the combination of those both. Because you really are able to put the two into one. And that's the connection between the idea of a holiday that you actually get to experience as a holiday. That's a Pesach retreat, but my friends, although I should try to sell you a retreat, I just want you to experience Pesach in the best way you can. Because that's exactly what you could do in your own home with your own family by making your Pesach the most meaningful experience that you can. And now, of course, in between, you have Cholamayet. This year, it's only three days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, is already era of Yom Tov. On those days, you're allowed to work. You can go on trips. It's a good time, opportunity to go with your family, go to Pilansburg, go to Lion Park, go to wherever your desires might be. But of course, can't just take an ordinary picnic with. If you're not at the retreat, just pack up some matzah, some other goodies, have a braai, will be just like our ancestors when they left Egypt. So we're not going to eat any chametz from midday 
of the day before Pesach until the conclusion of the holiday. What's chametz, someone asks? Chametz means literally leavened grain. Any food or drink that contains even a trace of wheat, barley, rye, oats, spelt, or any of the derivatives, that's chametz. If it wasn't guarded from leavening or fermentation, it's chametz. So bread, cake, cookies, cereal, pasta, most alcoholic beverages, they're what we call chametz. And those are items, foodstuffs, that cannot be consumed during Pesach. So now is the chance, now is the time to start stocking up on all your delectable gastronomic delights that you wanted to enjoy on Pesach. And it's time to rid our homes of chametz. It's quite an intensive process, actually. And it involves a full cleaning searching, destroying mission during the weeks before Pesach. Now's the time to be doing exactly that, to get into the Pesach spirit, to get the homes cleaned. And and chametz actually is not only about the food that cannot be consumed. Chametz perhaps also could be a reference to certain, certain, call it, un- wanted character traits that perhaps we each might possess within ourselves. And it's about confronting them. And maybe, just like an Arab Pesach, we actually light a fire to burn the chametz. So when we say that, kol when we're trying to eliminate the chametz from our premises, we should also eliminate the chametz, the undesirable personal character traits that we might have within ourselves so that we can be in a much better place, be better people. That's part of the process. It's not only, yes, of course, literally, it is about getting rid rid of the chametz, the unleavened bread, etc., but more so about eliminating parts of ourselves that we know need refinement, need to be, need to be improved within ourselves. And in that case, chametz that cannot be disposed of can actually be sold. So what you need to do now is to try to clean out, put aside the chametz that you're not going to be using during uh, the chametz that you are going to be, you know, selling. And you would give it to the rabbi. You would sign a document. And these letters will be ready from the basin soon. Where you can actually, or you could do it online actually, go to the Chabad South Africa website, where you can fill out a form and sell your chametz, meaning you actually will not be owning your chametz during the entire period of Pesach. So that is one of the ways of getting by with dealing with your chametz. And someone's asking about Gabrakts. I have a fascinating insight I want to share with you about that. So really do want to talk about the satyrs and all that. Maybe we'll get to more of that next week. But here's an interesting thing where there's a particular Chabad custom that we are more careful, not just about not eating chametz, but not even not even eating what we call gebrachts. So what is gebrachts? It's a very fascinating uh, debate that has actually raged in many Jewish communities for a very long time and still today 
if you are particular about Gebrakts, Pesach retreat is Gebrakts free. So let's understand, you know, when you, you look out there and you're looking for what to buy for Pesach, you want to know when you see something is marketed and advertised as non-Gebrakts, what does that mean that we're a non-Gebrakts program? So let me just try to break this down and explain it. You know, it's, it's really rare to find a substance that is so utterly and uncompromisingly rejected by the Torah. Right? There are other foods that their consumption is forbidden. Say, blood, bacon, uh, you know, horse meat. Any meat or non-kosher animal is forbidden to be consumed by a Jew. Right? Cheeseburgers. But this the Torah forbids us to eat, derive benefit from it in any way. You can't sell... Feed your, to your animal, use as kindling milk and meat. That's actually in this week's parsha of Kisisa. We, one of the aliyahs ends, Can't mix a kid with its mother's milk. So we can't even keep it in our possession. We can't have it at all. Now usually any forbidden substance actually becomes nullified if it mixes with a much greater quantity of permissible substances. But, so take for example milk and meat, just to illustrate. In fact, I read my kids a great bedtime story the other day. And the story was about a big Purim party that was being prepared in the community. And the ladies were all preparing for this big Purim suda in Jerusalem hundred and something years ago. Well, the gist of the story is that at some point, in the middle of the preparations for the Purim Su'uda, lots of food, you can imagine, kreplach and chicken soup and all the goodies. You know, we had a Persian Purim at our Santan Central Shul. A gastronomic wonderland. Foods that you can't imagine. Parsi, delicious Iranian cuisine. And there they were preparing in Jerusalem as well for their festive Purim Su'uda with all types of deli meat delicacies. And then, by mistake, somebody opened a container of milk, and it splashed everywhere, and went straight into the meat dishes that was being prepared. You can imagine the hysteria, the devastation, the upset that the people, how broken-hearted they were. A whole Purim Sauda, the fest of Purim meal, would now be unfit for consumption due to the milk getting mixed with the meat. Well, they didn't know what to do, knowing that there's a rule that it's called bitl. I'm going to try to talk a little bit about that. That is nullification. If there's 60 times one over the other, a ratio of, let's say, 60 times, in this case, more of the meat than the milk, well, then it's permissible. It becomes nullified. The milk becomes insignificant. How is one to know though? They went to the rabbi to ask if what they should do. And the rabbi said, I'll get back to you. A few hours later, he sent a message that the meat is totally fine, permissible, and allowed to be consumed. They asked the rabbi why, how could he be sure about this measurement? And the rabbi said, I did some calculations and I figured it out. 
He never explained, and no one ever understood. Years later, after the rabbi passed away, an old man, who was formerly the milkman in the community, was dying. And he wished to reveal the secret of what happened on that fateful Purim. And he explained. He said that in order to try to stretch his milk out a little further, what he used to do sometimes was dilute the milk with water. The rabbi, for some reason, had this suspicion and asked him. And he confessed to the rabbi that that's what he did. The rabbi warned him that it's not something that's permissible. It's theft. It's cheating. You can't pe- sell people milk that's diluted unless they know. But the rabbi never shamed this man. And the rabbi allowed the community to consume that meat on that Purim festive meal. We'll be right back and talk more about Gebrachts. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. And the question that was asked me before was, what is this gebrukt? So the truth is there's so much to talk about Pesach, and you can see I'm going in all different directions today. We perhaps should have it a little bit more methodical, and maybe next week we'll talk about getting ready for your seders and preparing and your checklists and everything else. But since it's an important question that was asked about what gebrukt is, as I started mentioning before the break, we talk about different things that can sometimes become nullified. And I was telling you the story about the milk that was diluted and therefore became nullified with the meat. Because certainly the meat was more than 60 times the milk. But when it comes to chametz, to leaven products on Pesach, the Torah forbids the slightest trace, even if it blends with something a million times its volume. The entire lot becomes unfit for consumption. It's not allowed. That's chametz, of course, on Pesach. The Torah instructs us not to eat or even possess any chametz that we own is forbidden to have in our possession. That's why now is the time to get ready. And you'll see that we're cleaning up our homes. We're getting ready for this holiday. So much to talk about scraping, cleaning, dismantling, boiling, you name it. And on the night before Pesach, we're going to do Bidikas Chametz. On that note, I must let you know that if you are going to be away for Pesach, say you're coming to our retreat or going anywhere else, it's important that you do the Bidika, the search for Chametz in your home. That's besides for the metaphorical search within ourselves for Chametz actually, the night before you leave. So say you're flying to Israel on the Sunday night flight, you should actually do the search in your house then on Saturday night, before Pesach. So you actually did a search in your home, which you have a responsibility to do. And this chametz, the minutest breadcrumb, or beer stain, or pasta residue, anything in which grain and water have come together and fermented, is chametz, and is utterly intolerable for the entire eight days. So, of course, we talked before about anything that comes from the five grains, 
Now, of course, wheat flour contains an enzyme called beta-amylase, which breaks down the starch into glucose, into sugar. The glucose is then converted into alcohol. When the alcohol evaporates, which could be a pleasant smell for some, then the dough rises. So take rice, for example. Rice doesn't have this beta-amylase. Although other enzymes contained in rice generate a slow-process fermentation, that's why, actually, in the Ashkenaz custom, many people don't consume rice on Pesach. Oh, I shouldn't say many people. Nobody. So, there's a lot more to talk about. I won't get into the science and the biochemistry of of chametz. Let's talk about what is this thing, gebrachts? That was the question. Let's stay focused on that. Gebrachts actually is a Yiddish word. And it's a term that refers to anything, literally gebrachts means broken, broken apart. So what's broken? Well, what are we talking about that's broken? We're talking about matzah. We're talking about matzah that perhaps was gebrachtzed, broken up, but not just broken, but came in contact with water. Maybe the Hebrew terminology for this is more accurate, which is called shruya, which literally means soaked. Matzah shruya, soaked matzah. So people wonder, can I soak my matzah? Can I put it into the soup? What about in grape juice or chrein or fish or whatever it is? Right? Can't you dip matzah into whatever dish of food you like? Can you just maybe crumble the matzah into matzah meal? And you could have those delicious matzah balls, knedlach. And you'll notice if you attend a Chabad Seder, we don't eat real knedlach until the eighth night of Pesach. Although, I'll throw in a quick plug for our retreat. At the retreat, we give you fake knedlach. Chicken balls, potato flour, uh, super nuts. We give you imitation knedlach so we satisfy that tradition of eating knedlach and Pesach that many people have. The thing is, once dough is baked, this whole fermentation process is no longer present, right? So it cannot become chametz. The mix of flour and water will only rise as long as it's dough, not after it's baked into matzah. And in fact, that is something the Gemara talks about and discusses. So Matzah, technically speaking, matzah that's soaked in water is perfectly fine. Matzah that's cooked into your chicken soup is kosher. And it's kosher for Pesach, not to be worried. So, of course, then you wonder, what's the concern? Why is it that so many people, particularly Hasidim, but many others as well, many communities, refrain from eating any matzah or any matzah products even that have come in contact with liquids on Pesach? And that's why you'll have non-gebructs cake. In fact, the Pesach cakes that we get or we bake are all shahakal. They're not baked with any wheat. No, no, no flour in them. Is potato flour, the almond flour. There's other imitations, but not real flour. Because there is this stringency. It's a custom. Matzah is made simply of water and flour 
that were very speedily and thoroughly blended and baked. If you ever watch the process of matzah baking, it's beautiful. Whenever we're in New York, I take my kids usually to go see it and experience it and be part of it to bake matzah together. So once the matzah is baked, it cannot be chametz. And the same thing, matzah meals just ground matzah that was like sort of, say, turned it back into a kind of flour, but it's already baked. There's nothing about it that can make it chametz. Yet, so many Jews are careful not to consume any gebrachts. I think this is a longer conversation, but we'll try to discuss it in a nutshell today in our remaining time. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Salta Salam, Rabbi Ari Kivan. And today we're talking about getting ready for Pesach. And the question that was posed earlier, which we are trying to discuss a little bit, is about gebrachts. As I established so far, once matzah is baked, it is matzah and cannot become chametz. However, there's a lot of discussion about this in halachic responsa. I want to share with you a little bit what the Alter Rebbe, who's the Balatanya, and the author of the Shulchan Ar-Harav. This is what he said. Since nowadays we cannot clearly see that even after the baking, there, again, sorry, he says, since nowadays we can clearly see that even after the baking, there is some visible flour left on the surface of the matzah, which sometimes you pick up a matzah, you might actually see on it some flour. In some cases, he's not saying that it's always the case, but he's saying that those few particles of raw flour in the cases where a matzah was not completely baked or the flour somehow is on it, that's where the risk of leavening can be. Not that that will always be the case, but because that is a possibility, he said, therefore, we want to be extra careful. Although the dough is baked in the oven and cannot become chametz, but he says that still there are times that there is some bits of flour, a small amount of flour that could be found on the matzahs of, they're already baked, but yet there's still some flour left. Now, of course, people wonder, you know, who cares of some flour that was, you know, wasn't needed well. What's the matter? So here we come to another interesting discussion. Actually, going all the way back, Rashi was of the opinion that once flour, even kernels of wheat, have been roasted, they will never become chametz, even if placed in water. But others, such as the Rambam rule, that while roasted flour will not become chametz, kernels of wheat will not be fully dried in the oven, since the flour is covered by the shell of the wheat. So flour that's obtained from these roasted kernels may not be placed in water on Pesach. That was the opinion of the Rambam. Again, I don't want to go into all of the debate, but there's been a major discussion, different opinions of some people being very, very stringent, the possibility that matzah meal would look like flour, or the chance of flour remaining on the matzah, which could become chametz, according to the Rambam's opinion. And that's the issue of Gebrakt, that there is the slight possibility. And chassidim go lifnim meshur asadim, beyond the letter of the law, and therefore we're very careful not to allow any matzah, even if you don't see the flour on it, to come into contact with any liquid. Or should I say any water? Because may peros, liquid from fruit, would be allowed. So 
That's why you'll notice that at Chabad Seder tables, we keep the matzahs covered on the table. And before we pour water or anything that contains water into a cup or bowl, we make sure that the no matzah crumbs are there. And that's the reason why even Mayim Acharonim, the water that's passed on our lips before benching, is actually not used on Pesach. The rest of the year we do. Now, of course, there are many great rabbis who are not particular about this. And I'm not going to get into this whole debate, but I will say that even some of the Lithuanian great rabbis, such as Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Torvadas, he did not eat kibraktz, and many others didn't. And when he was asked why, he said, you're a Litvak, Litvak eat kibraktz. And he said he was a student in Slabatka, and he was invited to a meal on Pesach, and he doubted the kosher status of the soup in that particular home. But not to insult the host, he said he doesn't eat kibraktz. And that's how he got out of eating that soup on that particular day. And once he said that, he said he never ate kibraktz again in his life. Of course, I'm sharing with you that even in the Lithuanian community, it is somehow, sometimes also observed. I want to conclude by saying as follows. Although there were very careful not to eat kibraktz throughout Pesach in the Hasidic tradition, but on the final day of Pesach, on the last day, Achron Pesach, that's when the Gebrachts does come out. And that's when we eat our Kenedlach and mix matzah into everything we eat. Why? There's a few reasons that are offered for this. If one were to keep all of the stringencies of Pesach, even on the eighth day, you would be indicating that these are not chumers, but rather basic halacha, and there's a real concern of chametz. So the Hasidic tradition was to eat gebrakt on the last day, so as not to in any way be indicting or showing that we're that that gebrakt is chametz. Rather, it's a stringency, and being that the last day of Pesach, not that we could be lenient on the last day, but in this particular matter, in this regard, we are able to do it, and it's a way to come together with all Jews. And it's very interesting that this is the particular custom. And of course, there is a lot more to talk about this. But it looks like our time here today is up. So what I will do is remind you that Pesach is coming up very soon. And now is the time to prepare, to get ready for it, and to do everything we have to do. That we experience emancipation from slavery, just like our ancestors did back then. But we too. Because slavery is not just something that happened to our ancestors so long ago in Egypt. When we hold our cell phones, which are called cell, it's also a form of slavery and jail sometimes. So we could be emancipated from any types of addictions and habits. And in fact, the Hebrew word for Egypt, the country in which our ancestors were slaves, Mitzrayim, means constraints and limitations. And this is what Pesach is about breaking free from those constraints and limitations that are holding us back from achieving, from doing, from being that which we want to be. So just like Purim that we just celebrated, we experience the redemption, the freedom from Haman. Let us now release the shackles, not just of Haman, but of Pharaoh, of all our challenges, our struggles, our difficulties. As Dale Carnegie says, denial is not just a river in Egypt, my friends. Egypt is not just the geographic location in the Middle East, but rather it is a state of being and 
We need to liberate ourselves from that constraint. Wishing you all a great Shabbos. Remember, there are two Torah portions. We read this Shabbos, Kisisa and Para. So go to Shul, be part of it. Remember to aspire to inspire before you retire so that you won't expire. Carpe diem. Have a great day and a fabulous Shabbos.